2: And
1: our heard on KCBO 106.5 FM Los Angeles, 102.3 FM Riverside,
2: and 105.0 AM
0: Palm Springs. We're back, and joining us on the line for the interview, we have uh, the authors of a fine book that uh, we've been going through. It's, it, uh, you're going to love this. It's called The Duck Tate Killer. And the uh, authors on the line, we have Phil and Sandy Hammond. Thank you for being here.
4: We're happy to be here. Yeah,
3: thanks for having us.
0: So let's, let's start out, first of all, before we get into the details. How did you guys get into writing uh, this story and what, what brought you in and, and, and not only brought you into it, but actually made you write a book?
4: Well, we were going around to a lot of places speaking about our other books, Get Your Girl and Get Your Girl Uncovered. And they are crimes around the same area where a duct tape killer took place. And people kept coming up to us and saying, uh, you should do a book on Robert Leroy Anderson, uh, who the du- who is the duct tape killer. And so we had so many re- requests for it we had requests to write a lot of other books, too. And we sat down with the person who prosecuted the case. And he knew so much about it, of course, that we ended up deciding to write a book with him. And we actually figured that there was already a book about him written because it's such a famous case in our area, especially. And we were surprised to find out that one hadn't been written already.
0: That was Larry Long is the uh, other person you're talking about.
4: Right. He was the Attorney General of South Dakota, but at the time, he helped to prosecute Robert Leroy Anderson, the duct tape killer.
0: Okay. Wow. Now, uh, when you guys uh, started doing this and researching stuff like this, um, do you find that writing these uh, crime books and murder books um, affects you in any way? Does it kind of get on, you know, your, your nerves, so to speak?
3: Al, this was a tough one. I lost a little sleep over this one. It was such a harsh case. Uh, but anybody that would end up reading the book sees that we have some glimmers of good at the end. And one of the things that we decided to do right off the bat, uh, we told uh, former uh, Attorney General Larry Long that we all agreed that uh, a certain amount of the proceeds for the book sales would go to the domestic violence and sexual assault organizations. So we wanted something good to come out of this harsh story.
4: This this was a story that affected the investigators. Investigators always have those one or two cases that just stay with them and never leave them. And most of the investigators said this was the case for them, and we can understand why. You just, um, uh, the two women who disappeared and were murdered, they're just two of the most wonderful women you could meet. So that made Hmm. it very difficult.
0: And and the one uh, victim, they never did find her body, is that correct?
3: No, yeah, Piper Straley's body has never been found, although one of the main investigators uh, has said he he will never give up looking for Piper's body until the day he dies.
4: In, in fact, since the book came out, he has gotten some calls, but nothing that was anything that he could follow up with. So the only thing they have ever found are two hairs from her head that they were able to match and determine that, that it was her.
0: Gotcha. Wow. So, okay, let's get into the stories. Now, uh, let's set okay. the, uh, the, the, the stage so people kind of get, what's the time period and also where else is this happening?
3: Well, Al, these crimes uh, took place in southeastern South Dakota and they're bordered by uh, Minnesota and Iowa around the town of the city of Sioux Falls, which is the largest city in South Dakota. But at that time in the mid-1990s, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, boasted a population of about 100,000 people. And this is where these crimes are taking place. And so what happens, we open up the book with the Piper Stryley investigation and disappearance. Something was wrong. On the Monday morning of July 29, 1996, 27-year-old Piper Stryley did not show up for work. She was dependable, responsible. She was a former high school homecoming queen. And when she didn't show up for work, Obviously, there was a lot of concern. A coworker called the Striley home that Piper shared with her husband, Vance, her uh, daughter that was three-and-a-half years old, and her youngest child that was two years old. And the phone rang for a long time. And finally, the phone picked up, and it was little three-and-a-half-year-old Shayna. And the co-worker said, is your mommy home? And the little girl said, no, my mommy's going to die. And then the oh phone boy. hung up. And because of that disturbing call, McCook County Sheriff Gene Taylor was dispatched to the Stryley residence. Now, he wasn't told of all these circumstances. He was just told to check on the welfare of children. And when he got there, he knocked on the door. Nobody was answering. Nobody was answering. But he could hear little kids inside. So he opened the door and went in, and he saw the little three-and-a-half-year-old girl. And he asked her, is your mommy or daddy home? And the little girl started crying, and she said, no, my mommy's going to die. A mean man in a black car carried mommy away. Uh. And so set into motion this investigation to the, the, the broad daylight disappearance of this young mother.
0: Wow. Now, so how was this area? Was this kind of a shock to people? Or is, it a, is it got a bad crime rate? Uh, Sioux Falls, that
3: yeah, is. Actually, Sioux Falls, South Dakota was voted the number one place in the United States to live based on low crime, you know, uh, housing, job availability, uh, air quality. And no, it's a, it was an area of very low crime at that time. So it was, it was a huge shock to people in that area. And in the book, we slowly connect the Piper Stryley disappearance with a couple of other uh, crimes that end up being connected as we move through the book. Okay. Wow. Wow.
0: So, um, so now the, the police, the sheriff's there. Um, he's hearing the story from the from Shana, the the three and a half year old daughter. Um, where do they go from there? Like, what what, what happens next?
4: Okay, so next, they they call in some reinforcements. Some investigators come in. They go through the house. They can see things just are out of sorts. Uh, things have been tossed around, knocked over. They find a knife in the garbage can, and they really don't have anything to go on, but they do set up a blockade in the road outside of their house. Now, they lived in a rural area. They lived on an acreage. Um, they were starting up. A church. So they, in their yard, they had benches for the pews. They had an archery area, a swimming hole, that kind of thing. So they and right, they were running a
3: Bible camp.
4: Right. They were running Bible camp. And so they're asking people who, they're stopping cars as they go by, seeing if anyone saw anything. Well, a county road grader came because when you have gravel roads, you need someone to come by to grade those roads down so they're not like a washboard. And this road grader says, well, yes, I've been going back and forth in a, you know, a one or two mile area all day, and he he had seen something suspicious. He'd seen a black ba- black SUV, and he said it wasn't just a black SUV, it was all black. The tires were black, the rims were black, the, the bumpers were black. It really stood out, and the car had done some strange things. One time it came toward him, and then all of a sudden went in the, down in the ditch and made a U-turn, and he'd seen that strange vehicle three at three different times that day
3: Hmm. so and so yeah so then when so now with the little girl saying a mean man in a black car and the road grader saying he saw this erratically driving black suv and about this time piper's husband gets home and they start talking and piper now this was on a monday july 29th that piper disappeared Vance remembered that a strange man had come to the door the Friday morning before. There was a knock on the door and Vance went to the door and answered it. There was a man with a kind of a scruffy uh, facial hair and a baseball cap. And the man seemed very flustered to see Vance answer the door. And uh, he the guy started stammering around and saying, Oh, uh, 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 you guys run some kind of a camp here. And Vance said, well, yes, you know, if we run a Bible camp for children and, They got talking, and the man, you know, so Vance asked this guy his name, and the guy said, my name is Robert Anderson. My dad lives up by the lake a few miles north of here, and I drove by, and I was just kind of stopping to see what was going on here. And Vance said, well, here, write your name down on a sheet of paper, and we'll send you out some information about the Bible camp." And Vance remembered that the guy had a black SUV that was all black, the rims, everything, the bumper just very flat black and it just stood out and so now they're making this connection on this black vehicle and they've got a name robert anderson okay
4: so then they have a, a dnr official who's there because they know the area they know all the people in the county and so he says well yeah there is someone by the name of grubby anderson who lives where this man has said his dad lives And so they have a name to go by. Now, this is 1996, so they don't have computers. So they have to call to the State Department of Motor Vehicles, and they have to, by hand, go through file cabinets finding Andersons with an SUV. So it was quite a test, but they came up with a lot of names since it was such a common
3: name. And in the course of coming up with this, looking for this name, Robert Anderson, They make a connection with a woman by the name of Ruth Anderson. Now, it's almost 3 o'clock in the morning. These investigators have stayed at the Striley residence. They're doing anything they can to try to find this mother, that young mother that's been abducted right out of her home. They They get a phone number for a Ruth Anderson. So one of the investigators decides to make up a story. So they ring this number, and this groggy woman answers, and the investigator said, Hi, uh, is is there a, a Robert Anderson? Is that your husband? And the woman says, No, I have a son by the name of Robert Anderson. And the investigator said, Oh, I hate to call it this uh, early in, uh, in the morning, but I'm an over-the-road trucker, and I'm looking into buying a vehicle from Robert Anderson. And she goes, Well, that's my son. He doesn't live here, but he works the night shift at Morell's. Now, Morell's is a meat packing plant. And so... They got a connection for a Robert Anderson in a local factory. They got what they wanted at that point. And so now they're focusing on this black SUV and this Robert Anderson.
1: Okay.
4: So now we're going to backtrack a little bit. Because when they heard the word Morels, it brought to mind to all of them a case that had happened two years before. A woman named Larissa Demansky had disappeared out of the Morels parking lot. She left work, she worked the night shift, so she left work early uh, in the morning, and she didn't return home, and her husband went to the parking lot to look for her. He found her vehicle with a flat tire and the keys in the door. They investigated that case every which way you can imagine. Uh, The circus had been in town that week. They even went and investigated people in the circus. They couldn't find a single lead. The case went cold. So now, <laughs> two years later, they hear the word Morels.
0: So the connection.
3: Great. Yeah, they're starting to make a connection. Now, kind of the interesting thing about the Demanski family, Larissa Demanski who goes missing from the Morels parking lot, they, her and her husband Bill and their two young daughters, immigrated from the Ukraine to get away from uh, religious persecution. They were Christians and Bill's father was a was a Christian minister, and it was banned by the by the government of Ukraine. And so they came <laughs> to the United States, very religious people, in order to have a good life. And they settled in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, and landed jobs at the Morell's Meatpacking Plant, which was a good-paying job back in the mid-1990s. <laughs> and so that's a little bit about the Domansky background. Larissa was actually a very intelligent young woman, spoke several languages. And so this very pretty woman has just vanished. So now these investigators are kind of making a connection. What the heck is going on?
4: So they now have are they, Robert
0: are, Anderson? Question. I uh was the connection that they were both a uh, religious uh, families or
3: no that that's been asked. No, we can't we can't say that they were targeted because of their religion. What we can say is that they were both very very well respected, fine women. Yeah,
4: they okay. they could not prove it, but that was a question okay. of whether that was a connection, although they couldn't prove it.
3: Okay. But so now, so now, Elle, what happens is it's it's still now it's about four o'clock in the morning, and the investigators go to the Morels' parking lot since this Ruth Anderson said her son worked a night shift there. Okay, they are going uh, to look for this black SUV. They now have a license plate number for a Robert Anderson with a Bronco. So they drive back and forth through the parking lot and they find the license plate number and it is a Bronco. But it's a a very light blue Bahama blue Bronco. So they're thinking, well, what the heck? We would would have this guy, but this is not the right colored vehicle. Well, now it's getting very early in the morning. The sun's starting to come up. They go get that road grader and that the man who said he saw this black SUV pull a U-turn. And the investigators don't say anything. They just ask him if he'll look through the parking lot with them. And as they drive by, the guy that drove the road grader said, right there, stop here. If that blue Bronco was black, that would be the vehicle right there. So the color of this vehicle is really puzzling investigators. They've got a license plate number. They've got a name, Robert Anderson. Uh, Robert Anderson stopped at the Strider residence asking about their Bible camp but they don't have the right color vehicle
4: so they end up sending investigator Bob Grand Prix to Leroy Anderson's home to, to see if he'll come and do an interview because they don't have any reason to arrest him things haven't matched up
3: and that was a little later in the day they followed they staked out that Bronco
4: mm-hmm. and
3: they saw this Robert Anderson come out of work get his Bronco and go to his residence in this Bronco now mm-hmm. Bob Grand Prix as Sandy's saying here goes to his house
4: right and bob grand prix specialized in interviewing sexual offenders and he said as soon as robert anderson opened up the door his antenna went up he said he got a creepy feeling and he said he introduced himself and said i'd like you to come down to the station for some questioning and robert leroy anderson said okay and got dressed and went down there and (coughs) so Yeah, Grant Free knew that that wasn't right. If somebody comes to your house and says, I want to question you, you say, Wait, what's going on? Am I being charged with something? So Mm. they let him drive down there and they interviewed him.
3: So so Robert Anderson voluntarily comes down Mm -hmm. and decides Mm. he will be interviewed. Okay? And so this is not a new this is very unusual. To the investigator, why isn't this guy saying, What the heck is this all about? Am I being charged with something? Very calm, very calculating. And,
4: And he's enjoying being interviewed. And when they're asking him questions, he's acting like he's going to give them the answer they want, like he's almost ready to admit, and then he pulls away and starts going down another road. And here and there, he starts going off on tangents, like talking about black holes and how... He's developed his own theory of relativity and how he's mm. smarter than everybody. And they they get the feeling that he's studied up on investigative techniques.
3: And what I'm going to tell you, Alan, Michael, is when Sandy and I first got investigating this thing, we thought maybe this Robert Anderson was kind of mm. operating on a lower intellectual level. To, you know, mm. But he wasn't. He was very intelligent. He'd been an engineering major, a very intelligent guy.
0: So and narcissistic so kind of elite, personality yes, disorder?
3: Yeah, I mean, probably.
4: They didn't test him for that, but he certainly fits that profile. Yeah, he would fit
3: that profile. Okay. So, Bob Grandfree, the investigator that had a lot of uh, knowledge, he's keeping this guy talking. When the investigators take a break, now, they haven't given him his Miranda rights. They just want to keep this guy talking. They're thinking he may have Piper kept somewhere. And if they spook him off, he's going to go and kill this gal. Their, their main thought was to keep this guy talking and if they could get enough, they could get search warrants. So Grand Prix said he got this Robert Anderson talking in third person. Well, Robert, what would somebody do if they had abducted Piper Stryley? What would they do with her? And he said, you could tell he liked that. He perked up and he started saying things like, well, I've heard when a woman's abducted, she kept as a sex slave and he started talking about all this kinky stuff that would be done to this woman, shackled up and this kind of stuff. And Grand Prix said you could tell he was getting off on saying what somebody else might do to Piper. But so they kept him talking, kept him talking. Long enough, for several hours, they kept him talking, Alan, Michael. And enough to get some search warrants. Search mm-hmm. warrants for his vehicle, the Bronco, the blue Bronco that was sitting right out in the police parking lot. Mm-hmm. A search of his body and a search of his home. They didn't have enough to charge him with anything, but they had enough to get us some search warrants to check him out.
4: Hmm. But here's the rub. They knew that at some point a judge was not going to allow the videotape that they, that they had going. And that was because there was a point where Robert Anderson said, well, maybe I should have a lawyer, or uh, I'm getting tired, I want to go home. And so they knew that they reached this point where anything he said would not be admissible, but they had to keep going and asking him because if he was holding Piper somewhere, they needed to find out and they didn't want to spook him off or he might be afraid to go back to where she is. If she was in a, you know, enclosed place, she might die. So their priority is finding out where she is. However, if he ends up confessing in the process, it won't be admissible.
3: Mm. So they're, But they were willing to take that risk. Okay, They wanted to find Piper if she was still alive. They come back with the search warrants. Right away, they start doing a script search on him. One of the interesting things is when he started taking things out of his pocket, there was handcuff keys on his key ring. They also mm. noticed that he did not wear underwear. Okay? He was a guy that did not wear underwear. He just had his blue jeans on. This becomes important. Okay? Now they start searching the Bronco that's out in the place parking lot. They start finding some bizarre things. The back seats of, the, of this Bronco had been removed, and there's a homemade bondage board that fits perfectly in the back end with eye rings in the corner, indoor outdoor carpet tape uh, glued to it. They find a toolbox that had items of a of a heinous nature: ether, eyeballs, chains, long wooden dowels. All kinds of devious stuff that the investigators started uh, deeming the torture box they also found a <clears> couple <throat> pieces of vegetation uh, plants that had inadvertently got in his vehicle
0: and they were fresh mm.
3: and they were fresh oh, so as patient, if
0: mm. like she buried wherever he buried her that might have been
3: something yes or, or these plants yeah could lead to the crime scene mm-hmm. okay.
4: But what are the odds of that? You know, in a rural area, there are weeds and plants all over the place.
3: But those weeds and plants are going to become very important. Mm -hmm. Now, let's go back to the Striley residence. They started taking things. On the morning, Piper disappeared. She was menstruating. They, The investigators took blood-stained sanitary pad from the bathroom wastebasket. They took her hairbrush with some strands of her hair. When they searched Robert Lee Ray Anderson's home, they found rolls of duct tape. They found a roll of duct tape in the back of his Bronco. And they found a pair of dirty blue jeans uh, laying in his laundry room. It had grass stains on the knees, and it had a dark stain right in the front crotch of the blue jeans. Those were taken.
4: Now, this was some meticulous investigative work because he was a pack rat. Their house was so packed with stuff they could hardly get down the hallway. So to find that pair of jeans that they needed was was quite a feat.
3: So hmm. the blood stain, the pants that have the stain in them eventually are a blood stain. And this, the blood stain sanitary pads become important to the trials as it comes up.
4: In hmm. order to make a match. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: Hmm. I was going to say now, you um, when you said um, they were a pack rat, um, did, did this um, – Man, does Anderson live with a wife or kids or have any family?
4: Yes, he had, he'd been divorced, so he had a wife and a son from his first marriage, and then he lived with his wife and their three young children.
0: Oh, so they were growing up in that. Yeah, so they were growing up in that.
4: Right, but but the fact that he didn't throw anything away really helped, because when they looked through the Bronco in the house, they find, found all kinds of receipts and other items that did help solve the crime.
3: So kind of oh. move forward a little bit. Yeah, they also found some receipts for tempera paint, washable paint, okay, and paint brushes and buckets. So they're starting to make this connection. So they go to the store where this tempera paint, this mixable tempera paint would purchased. And one of the investigators asked the sales lady, she said, he says, Would this paint, this kind of paint, wash off a vehicle? Because when they looked over the Bronco, they noticed there was some black splotches of, like, black paint that flaked off very easily.
4: Right. Think of when you wash your car. You know, it suds up, and you see that uh, the, the water running down and through cracks and crevices. No matter how much you wash your car, you don't get everything off. And so he had spray painted his vehicle black, and when he went to wash it, he didn't get all of it off. He'd
3: actually mixed it up and put it in a spray bottle. It was washable tempera paint.
4: Right, but the sales lady says, well, that's interesting. You're the second person this week to ask me if this could be washed (laughs) off a car. I guess who the (laughs) other person was.
3: Right. So now they're making the connection why the blue Bronco was blue and not black. The guy had used... Black temper paint to disguise his vehicle. And so now they're starting to make all this connection. And at this point in the book, kind of interesting, we flash to another young woman, a pretty young businesswoman by the name of Amy Anderson, no relation to Robert Leroy Anderson. One night, her and a friend were in Sioux Falls having a meal. After dark, they started, Amy starts driving to take her friend home in a rural community outside of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. As they're driving along, there's a car that's tailgating them. The headlights are right up against their bumper. So the two women slow down and this car pulls up alongside of them. They can see that there's two men in this uh, kind of a purplish maroon Monte Carlo. The car pulls in front of them and slows way down. So the two women, Amy Anderson pulls her car and passes this vehicle. And it starts becoming a cat and mouse game. This car drops behind and then rides right under bumper again. So the women are starting to get unnerved. This is a dark rural area out in a dark, secluded area. And so Amy slows her vehicle way down. Finally, the maroon Monte Carlo takes off and goes up over the hill. So thankfully, Amy just continues on the highway. It's a it's a it's an old tar highway out in the out in the country. As she comes up over the hill, she hits something, clank, 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 It bounces under her vehicle, and so she just continues on, and she takes her friend a couple more miles and drops her off at home, and she can tell one of her tires is going low, starting uh. to move there. Well, she thought she could make it back about four miles into a small town outside of Sioux Falls that had a gas station. Well, after she drove a couple miles, she couldn't. The tire goes flat, and she has to pull over. So she gets out, she opens the trunk, it's a dark highway, and sure enough, here comes this maroon-purple Monte Carlo, pulls up on the opposite side of the road and stops. This gruffy man with some facial hair and a baseball cap gets out and starts walking towards her. Now this Amy thought, well, the guy tailgated me, but he's going to be a good Samaritan, he stopped to help me change my tire. So she turns Mm -hmm. to this guy and she says, hey, thanks for stopping. And she turns to reach back into her trunk, And the guy grabs a hold of her and tries to drag her towards uh, the maroon Monte Carlo. Well, this Amy twists and pulls and fights and struggles. And finally, she breaks free. And she takes off sprinting down this dark highway, hoping that she doesn't run off the road into the ditch. And she's just in a panic. Uh And all of a sudden, headlights come up over the hill. And it's two young teenage girls that happen to be out on this uh, rural dark road. They pull over, and this Amy jumps in, and just before she jumps in, she can hear those two men back at the Monte Carlo say, let's get out of here, and they they pull a U-turn, and they take off in the opposite direction. And so, of course, these two teenage girls take Amy Anderson to town. The authorities are called, but they don't have much to go on, but that woman was an extremely lucky young woman that night on that dark highway.
4: Right. She was just able to tell them it was two men in a dark-colored vehicle. So, again... Uh, they had no leads to go by, and that got shelved.
0: Okay. Now, was this uh, when uh, they were teenagers? The uh, Robert Anderson when uh, oh. he was younger.
4: Now, this well, happened after Larissa disappeared, but before okay. Piper Stryley disappeared. Yeah, was that was right yeah, in the, the gal
3: that, okay. that escaped on that dark, lonely highway was right in between those other two women.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, okay.
3: But let me let me let me add one more thing. Some of the things that they found in Robert Leroy Anderson's possession when they had those search warrants, they found these sharp, homemade welded objects—a uh, vertical plate with a piece of sharp triangular uh, in the in the vertical position welded to it. Sharp little objects, crisscross, sharp objects. They're wondering what the heck is this? We've got a bondage board. We've got duct tape. Are these homemade? weapons to inflict pain on people they didn't know what they were well they end up turning out to be homemade tire poppers that was one of his plans was to disable a female's vehicle with these homemade tire poppers but at the time the investigators were really baffled by what all these different sharp invented objects were they thought they were some kind of a torture item first. Yeah. Hmm. And let's go back to that vegetation that was found in the back of the Bronco. The investigators thought if those plants could be identified as kind of not very common plants, maybe it would give insight to the crime scene. So they sent the two plants to uh, South Dakota state university to the botany department. And they had an expert analyze them. Well, the two plants turned out to be black snake root and honebar. And so they talked to the, bio- or the botanist and they said, could you show us where these plants might grow? They weren't real common.
4: And he said, yes, it would be in a shady area where there's no grazing. So they got a helicopter, they took them up and started around Piper Stryley's home. And he said it would not be around here. We need to go over by the river. It's called the Big Sioux River, where there wouldn't be grazing. It would be very shady. So they go about 30 miles east of where they'd been along the Big Sioux River until they finally found an area where he said, right down there, that's where you'd find this plant. It was near a little town called Baltic. So they landed the helicopter. They searched around. They found the plant and the plants, and in the process, they found some other items.
3: Yeah, they found some other items. So they got a search team of investigators out there. They found a wadded up piece of duct tape. That that made the hair on the back. So the next, there shouldn't have been duct tape in this dark, gloomy area underneath the trees along the river. Mm. They also found a nightshirt, and it turned out to be Piper's nightshirt. She was wearing. She was carried out of the house that morning in just her panties and her nightshirt that she wore. This nightshirt had been cut in half, split down the middle. They also found a burnt, burnt candle and a battery-operated vibrator out in that area. Although her so body has been recovered, right? right. No, that? Piper's body was okay. never recovered. Okay. But also on that homemade bondage board in the back of Robert Lee Randerson's vehicle, they recovered two human head hairs. Hmm. That ended up being head hairs from Piper Stryley The dark stain hmm. in the in the crotch of the of the blue jeans. Mm -hmm. The blood matched Piper Stryley. So they made the connection. She was raped. He didn't wear underwear. She was menstruating that morning. And her blood was in his blue jeans. Mm -hmm. So now they've got this connection. They've got no body, but they've got all this evidence. So they have enough to charge this guy with first-degree kidnap. They didn't want to try to go after a murder charge without a body.
4: Because they thought if they did find the body later on, then they could go after the murder charge.
3: Okay, which now, is what's happening eventually. Is
0: this Larry Long who's yeah. involved at this time?
3: Right. This is where Larry Long gets involved, okay? okay. They, they He's invited in. He's working out of the attorney general's office. And their job is to come in and assist the, the district uh, state's attorney with cases that are bigger than what they can handle. And here's where Larry Long comes in. So they decide to charge this guy with first-degree kidnap. They've got the head here. They've got the bloodstains. They've got the little girl who, who picked Robert Leroy Anderson's photo out of a photo lineup, little mm-hmm. Shayna, who now has just turned four. And here's one other thing that's very interesting that comes into play. The Sunday before Piper disappeared, Shayna's little brother Nathan turned two years old. It was his birthday. Huh. The parents, Piper and Vance, bought little Nathan one of those blue vinyl play tents that you set up with plastic poles. Okay. Shana said the mean man carried Mommy away, and he took Nathan's tent. Daddy, he took Nathan's birthday present. Huh. And so we know that Robert Lee Anderson went into the bedroom and took that kid's play tent. Now the investigators are thinking he took her for a body bag, but it's going to come out kind of interesting what happened with that blue play tent. So now they've got enough to charge this guy, but Alan Michael, there's a big debate around Shayna, the four year old. The prosecution wants her to testify. She's the only living witness that saw this guy take her mommy. And of course the defense says no. She's not old enough to understand the oath that she has to take. Uh, the defense attorney said, come on, you guys, no. You know what it's going to be like. We're going to get that little girl up on the stand. We're going to reduce her to tears. You know what our job is. People are going to hate us once we get yeah. that little girl and start cross-examining her. Yeah. Well, the judge himself that was sitting on this first-degree kidnap trial interviewed the little girl, the little four-year-old himself, And he Ah. determined that, yes, she did know right from wrong. She did know the difference between telling the truth, and she could understand the oath that she had to take to tell the truth. She's a smart one. Yes. Yes. We will allow this little girl to testify. But now Larry Long, the prosecution, said, okay, let's let her tell her story, but no cross-examination. We don't want the defense to beat this little girl up on the stands. Right. Well, no, it was the right of the defense to cross-examine. So... It was determined that, yes, she will testify and give her story, but the defense will be able to cross-examine her. So there was this huge focus on this little girl. Now, hmm. Shana had been working with a child psychiatrist based on the trauma and the guilt that she felt. She was the one that unlocked the door for Robert Leroy Anderson the, the morning he came and knocked on the door and took her mommy away.
4: Oh, boy. So
3: she was suffering from guilt. So she was working with a child psychiatrist, they were, had a female attorney kind of bond with her. So now the first degree murder trial is taking place for this Robert Lee Ray Anderson. Huge case in this area. They don't have a body, but they're going after this guy for a life sentence on first degree murder. They've got the forensic evidence and now comes the day everybody's on pins and needles for this little girl to testify. They did not have her come in the courtroom. They didn't want her to see Robert Lee Ray Anderson. So they Good. set up cameras. And they took the little girl to uh, a special room in the library that was in town, and they were going to interview her there. And the defense attorneys would cross-examine her there, and everything would be piped back into the into the courtroom so that Robert Lee Ray Anderson and everybody else in the courtroom could see. Mm-hmm. Well, on the morning, the female attorney sat down on the floor with uh, on the carpeted floor with little Shana. and she laid out the photos. And she said, Shana, can you show me the mean man that took your mommy away? Can you point him out again for us? It,
4: it was a photo lineup it with was a with Anderson and name. some men who looked like yes.
3: him. Yes. Okay. Shana had already picked him out. She'd already picked him out prior to the trial. Well, Shana had been given a little uh, a security, a fluffy security blanket that she could wrap herself up in and cover herself up if she started getting too upset.
0: Right.
3: And that was her way of letting everybody know that she was too upset. So as the trial's going on and they're in the room of the library, the female attorney's trying to get little Shayna to show the mean man in the photo lineup that took her mommy. Well, Shayna grabs her security blanket and curls up in it, wraps it around her, covers her head up and lays on the floor and curls up.
0: Hmm. And at
3: that moment, everybody in the courtroom, a lot of the spectators broke down and cried. And there was no testimony by that little girl that day. Did they eventually get testimony from her? Or? Here's what happened: on the morning that Piper went missing, Vance, her husband, called home. Now, Piper had already been taken away. Vance called home and was trying to get a hold of Piper, so he called. They had one of the uh, the phone recor- tape recording machine hooked up to their phone as well, and so he rang and rang and rang. Nobody answered, so Vance was leaving a message. Where are you, Piper? Give me a call at work. Well, right when Vance is hanging up, little Shayna picks up, and the tape recording machine keeps recording. Mm-hmm. And on the tape recording machine is little Shayna going, Papa, Papa, please call back. Papa, Papa. Oh, I hope he calls back. And then she hangs up. So mm-hmm. they played that for the jury, and that was really an emotional sway.
4: And then he was was convicted. Bondage board. Yeah, the bondage board is what what clinched it, and the uh, hairs on the bondage board matching and the blood stain matching. So he's convicted and sentenced to prison, and then that's when it gets interesting.
3: So Robert Leroy Anderson is now in the ad-seg wing of the maximum security prison. Doing (laughs) a life sentence for the kidnapping. Of Piper Stryling.
4: and ABSeg is administrative segregation, yeah. kind of a prison within the prison for okay. people on death row or or um, security risk.
3: Yeah, high security risk. risk. So he's in he's in the he's in the supermax of the of the max security prison, and he gets put in as a cellmate with a man by the name of Jeremy Bruner. Now Jeremy Bruner was only in his he was only like 24 years old, but Jeremy Bruner was smart and cunning. Now, Jeremy hmm. Bruner had grown up in the penal system. This guy had been locked up most of his teenage years and all of his adult life. So he really knew the prison system. Robert Ray Anderson was a sharp dude, but he was no match for Jeremy Bruner. Hmm. They become cellmates. Jeremy Bruner was basically a drug dealer and a theft. He didn't have much of a reputation as being a hardcore criminal in the maximum security prison. So Jeremy Bruner, being as cunning as he is, he had a friend with some computer skills drum up a fake rap sheet for him. And the fake rap sheet from the Department of Corrections had Jeremy Bruner being a hardcore gang member with drive-by shooting charges and that Jeremy Bruner had been charged with first-degree murder in Oklahoma but beat a first-degree murder rap. He never got charged with it. But he was a, a gang member, and completely violent. Now remember, this is a, just a big lie, but Jeremy Bruner had this reputation in the prison inflated by this fake rap sheet that he had drummed up. And so okay. Robert, Robert Leroy Anderson as his cellmate is very interested in how, how Jeremy Bruner beat a murder, a first degree murder charge in Oklahoma. Jeremy okay. Bruner says, Anderson, here's how I did it. We pinned my crime on somebody else. I got some evidence. We planted it on a dude that I knew that didn't have any alibi, and we tipped the authorities off, when when they found that physical evidence in this guy's possession, my lawyer was good enough to get me an acquittal on this first-degree murder chart. And right away, Robert Lee Anderson said, Jeremy Bruner, do you think you could help me do that with this woman situation that I'm locked up for? Huh. And now Jeremy Bruner's got the hook into this guy. Now he starts Jeremy Brunner, the cunning inmate, starts playing Robert Anderson. He said, you know what? I can talk to my people on the outside, Anderson, but it's going to cost you. You're going to have to have some money deposited in my brother's account. Uh, we can get this thing taken care of. But here's what I need to know. I need to know everything about those crimes. Okay? What you know, what the cops know, and what the cops don't know. Anything so why is, else could have this whole thing whole, whole thing blow up in our face.
0: So why is Jeremy Bruner doing this?
3: He's shrewd. Once he gets this information, he's going to take it to the ward in the prison and the attorney general of the state, and he's going to get himself a pardon for his crimes. He's going to get out. Gotcha. And he wants to get out. And so he's going to use this this information against Robert Ray Anderson. So he gets Anderson talking about everything. Anderson says how he snatched Larissa Demansky from the parking lot where she worked. He took her out and raped her for four straight hours. He wrapped duct tape around her mouth and face and slowly suffocated her to death. And, he, and he's got and told him where he buried her. He talks about abducting Piper Stryley. And so Jeremy Bruner actually being kind of sickened by the stuff he's hearing. But Jeez. he's acting hardcore.
4: Right. And he says, well, I'm, we're going to need some evidence that we can plant on somebody who doesn't have an alibi. Yeah.
3: So Jeremy Bruner says, look, Anderson, I know a guy that doesn't have an alibi. I'm going to call this guy Mr. Ghost. But I need some stuff to plant on this Mr. Ghost. We need something. I've got a woman <laughs> on the outside that will date Mr. Mr. Ghost and she'll plant this evidence on his property, in his car, or in his house, and we'll tip the cops off to him. Once they find that evidence, a good lawyer should get you an acquittal on this thing. So, like all serial killers, Alan, Michael, Robert Lee Randers had had taken souvenirs off Piper and Larissa, necklaces, rings, and he had them stored in his and his nine millimeter pistol. Oh, by the way, in the Striley residence, they found a spent bullet casing from a 9-millimeter pistol in the driveway. Uh Okay? So, he had a pistol with him the day he carried Piper out. When when he went into Piper's house, he threw her on the ground, he shackled her up, her ankles and her hands with handcuffs, and he carried her out of the house. Now, she was struggling and fighting. He fired off his 9-millimeter pistol to show her he meant business. In, the, in his haste to get away with this young woman, he couldn't find that spent shell casing that the automatic semi-automatic pistol kicked out into the driveway. So they had a shell casing for this 9mm pistol. Anderson tells Jeremy Bruner, draws him a map. He said, look, if you go to my mom's house, down in the basement by where my bedroom was when I was a kid, up in the rafters, I've got some jewelry. I took off those women when I killed them. The handcuffs are there. And my 9 millimeter pistol is there if, one, if somebody can break into my mom's house if they go up here with this map they can get that stuff and Jeremy Bruner says okay that's the stuff we're going to get to plant on Mr. Ghost and then we'll tip the cop after that once they find that pistol and that jewelry they'll think that dude is involved in the murder and you'll get an acquittal so hmm. Anderson spills everything to Jeremy Bruner now Jeremy Bruner the cunning inmate Talks to the Attorney General of South Dakota, Larry yeah, Long. The Attorney
4: General, uh, actually Mark Barnett.
3: Mark Barnett mm-hmm. was the the Attorney General, and they said you got to give us something more than this, Bruner. And Bruner said, "Look, you guys think that Robert Lee Ray Anderson took that little kid's vinyl blue play tent that day to wrap her body in? You've got it wrong. When he was struggling with Piper Straily inside that house." Either by mistake or on purpose, he shot his 9 millimeter off in the bedroom of that little boy. The bullet yeah. went through that blue play tent. There was a powder burn on that tent, and there's a hole in the floorboard of that little kid's bedroom. If you guys go out to that trailer house, pull back the carpet in that little Nathan's bedroom, you're going to find a bullet hole in the floorboard of that kid's bedroom. Yeah. Robert Lee Randerson took that blue play tent. Because it had the bullet hole in it, and it had a powder burn on it. Huh. The investigators went out there. They found the bullet hole. They went underneath the trailer house with their bare hands. They dug. They found the bullet slug, the 9-millimeter bullet slug that went through that kid's floor and into the dirt. Now they go to Ruth Anderson's house with the map drawn by Robert Lee Ray Anderson himself. They go up into It took them only five minutes. And they found that souvenir jewelry, his nine millimeter pistol, the handcuffs. And now they've got first degree murder with the death sentence charges on this guy, courtesy of the cunning inmate, Jeremy Bruner, who, wow. by the way, got his pardon and got released and got turned free on the streets hmm. for a short time, for a short time. So and he got, got himself Bruner, in trouble Br- again. <laughs> Bruner, could not, Br- Bruner could not keep himself out of trouble. He sold some fake LSD to an undercover cop. That could have been overlooked. Larry Long was about ready to pull his hair out. Mm. Then Bruner was a very hefty dude, over 400 pounds. (laughs) While he's being booked into the county jail, he had tucked some real methamphetamines under some fat rolls on his side of his belly. Well, he got (laughs) caught with that. That was the real deal. So (laughs) Bruner can't even keep himself. He was on the streets for nine days. Alan Michael, and Bruner gets himself <laughs> thrown back in. But to See, tell you yeah. about Jeremy Bruner's character, Jeremy Bruner becomes kind of a likable guy in this book. To show you his character, half of the inmates in the in the prison were supporting Bruner based off Anderson's heinous crimes. A lot of the inmates felt, you know, Anderson fell in with the pedophiles and people like that. He was not right. subject to a no-snitch coat. But some of right. them were throwing urine on Jeremy Bruner, threatened his life. They thought he was a snitch. Now, after Jeremy Bruner got his butt back in trouble and got thrown back in prison, he did not have to testify against Anderson. Here's a guy that's going to live the rest of his life in the penal system. He knows that. He's a criminal. Yeah. He said, I'll testify anyway. He was a stand-up hmm. dude. And he comes in to testify against Anderson anyway. Hmm. Wow. Now, wow. here's the interesting thing. We have to flash back to the kidnapped trial for a second here. This is something we forgot to tell you. During the kidnap trial, where they're going after a first-degree kidnap and a life sentence, a young man by the name of Glenn Walker, through an attorney, approaches the state's attorney and says, I can, for immunity, I can show you where Larissa Demansky's body is buried. And they're so busy. Larry Long and the prosecutor are so busy with this first-degree kidnap trial, they said, you have to have your attorney talk to the city attorney. Yes, we'd like to find the rest of his body. So Glenn Walker, through his attorney, Glenn Walker happened to be a childhood friend of Robert L. Ray Anderson. He was the other male in the car in the maroon-purple Monte Carlo that almost abducted that Amy on the dark highway that night.
4: But he froze. Uh. If he hadn't, if he had helped Anderson like he was supposed to, They had ether ready, and and they probably would have gotten Amy.
3: Okay. So Glenn Walker, Anderson's childhood friend, decides to get involved in abducting women with him. Actually, Glenn Walker helped Robert Leroy Anderson abduct Larissa Demanski from her job parking lot that night. They threw her on the ground, wrapped her up with duct tape, and threw her in the trunk of the car. So Glenn Walker is getting very nervous about this whole situation. He wants immunity. So the city attorney says, what do you need immunity from? And Glenn Walker says, well, one day when we were out driving around, Robert Anderson showed me where he buried Larissa Demansky's body. And the the city attorney says, well, you don't need immunity then, Glenn Walker. It's not against the law for you to know where somebody's buried. We want to know where Larissa's buried. So without signing any immunity papers, Glenn Walker takes the authorities to... Larissa Demansky's grave site. The investigators go out there and they exhume the grave site and they get some bone fragments. But now they need good DNA evidence, which was, you know, still kind of, still fairly new back in those days. It was new, yeah. So they needed, they needed DNA evidence (coughs) from Larissa Demansky's mom and dad. Well, they were still living over in the Ukraine. So Larissa Demansky's husband Learns how to draw blood, flies back to the U- Ukraine, draws blood from Larissa Domansky's mom and dad, and brings it back to the United States so they can match the, the DNA evidence from her parents to the bone fragments found out of this gravesite. It matches. So now they have a body. They have Larissa Domansky's body. They've got the jewelry, they've got the evidence, they've got the cunning inmate, Jeremy Bruner's testimony. Now they're going after this guy for first-degree murder and the death penalty. So uh, on, on interesting... Demansky, right? Yeah, go ahead. So right. death penalty on Demansky, but not Stryler. Stryler. Stryley. They got okay. they, they They don't have a body. Okay. Piper Stryler's body has never been found. Okay. Now, here here is what Anderson told Bruner, the cunning inmate, Bruner, what he did with with Piper Streiland. He said he was fairly disappointed. After he, he shackled Piper up to the bondage board and raped her repeatedly. Then he straddled her body and was going to slowly choke her to death. He wanted her to beg for her life and struggle, but Piper just wouldn't say anything. She died very passively. He was very upset about that. He wanted her to be very frightened and beg for her life, and she did do it. Serious sexual so he done there.
4: Right. a true right.
3: sexual sadist and remember the torture box the toolbox with all those, those nine inch long wooden dowels mm-hmm. he told Jeremy Bruner he used those to sexually pre- penetrate women with when he was sexually torturing them Jeez. that's what the wooden dowels were for <clears throat> so Piper dies peacefully Anderson told Bruner that once he was done killing her, he threw her body on the front floorboard of his car and drove casually through Sioux Falls with her out by the Big Sioux River we hit, where he had permission to go fish. There was an area, a back cove, where there was, you know, very little uh, current in the river. He said he waded out with Piper's body and shoved her underneath a log jam in the river. And that's what he said what, that's what he told Bruner he did with Piper's body.
4: But the investigators don't think that's probably what happened because a sexual sadist needs to be able to go back and visit their you know body, what they consider their trophy, which they know he did with Larissa Demansky because they found bullet holes in in the grave where the bones were. They know he went back there and shot shot the pistol into the ground. It's an and, act of
3: killing Larissa over and over, even though right. her, he's buried in the ground. He's in he's so, a sexual status.
4: So they don't think that he would take her to a log jam where he would not be able to go back, where someone could find the body. So they're, they're pretty sure that she is buried somewhere, and that's why some of the investigators just won't give up on finding her
3: body. They think Piper possibly did get wrapped in that, in her little boy's uh, vinyl blue play tent. And so now with the, the popularity of the book coming out, Uh, The head investigators are still not giving up hope that maybe somebody was out hunting or hiking, and they remember seeing a piece of blue plastic sticking up out of the ground, and maybe this book will jar their memory, and they're still hoping to bring Piper home. Okay. One of the interesting things about, I got another little story about the jury selection for the death penalty. Larry Long told us that it's an extremely intense process. It took about three weeks to get just the right jury pool of people that you believe can come back and vote to kill somebody with the death penalty. Hmm. So they took a long, tedious process. Now, during this process, Robert Lee Ray Anderson, the serial killer, is allowed to be there. This guy could not control himself. He would lean forward and look at these women jurors and look at their private parts and look them up and down and stare at them, so much so that six women that were potential jurors refused to go back in the room with him. But it was hmm. his right to be there. He gawked at these women so bad that they would they refused to be jury. Was this 1999? Uh, this is about, right. yeah, towards the end of the 1990s there. Okay. And so they finally get this jury pool set. The murder trial, the first-degree murder trial with the death penalty phase is going on. Jeremy Bruner, the cunning inmate, is brought out of the prison to do his testimony. Well, one day, this will give you a little insight into Jeremy Bruner's personality. He's kind of an interesting, funny character in a way. So one day, there's a recess, and Jeremy Bruner goes to Long, and the attorney general, he says, Hey, this thing's all going to blow up in your face. There's going to be a mistrial here. You guys have got the wrong person sitting on that jury. And Mark Barnett, the attorney general of South Dakota, said, What are you talking about, Bruner? He said, Bruner said, you've got a criminal sitting in your jury. He's one of my clients. I've dealt with this guy for years. He's a big-time criminal. Once the defense gets wind of that, this will be a mistrial. And so the attorney general said, no, no, no. What are we going to do? And he's paging through how much testimony they might lose if they have to try to get a new jury pool. And Larry Long said, Bruner, let the the, the attorney general of South Dakota stew on it for about 50 minutes. And Bruner said, nah, I'm just kidding, man. He's not one of my criminal (laughs) clients. (laughs) <laughs> so Bruner got, got the attorney general. Well, anyway, they get the death penalty on this guy. He's found guilty, first degree murder. They get the death penalty. And so now Robert Lee Ray Anderson is on death row, waiting for the executioner's needle, filing appeals. And he's up there for a couple years. And his father, Robert Lee Ray Anderson's father, commits suicide, puts a gun to his head, and kills himself. Robert Lee Randerson always had this strained relationship with his father. In fact, Robert Lee Randerson said one of his favorite songs was "Cat in the Cra- Cats in the Cradle uh, by uh it Chapman? Okay. Uh, yeah, think- the, the, the popular song Cats in the Cradle, well, about the dad who never had any time for his son. So Robert mm-hmm. Lee Randerson's dad commits suicide. A very short time later, they find Robert Lee Randerson hanging from uh, his cell, he committed suicide as well.
4: And some of the investigators just could not believe that because they said that's just not typical of a sexual status. They always need control. But that it had been a while. His name wasn't in the paper anymore. They think he might have been doing it for attention and then actually got the job done accidentally. And
3: again, that's just a theory. Maybe right. He did kill himself.
4: Mm-hmm. So uh, it's
3: Larry narcissism. Was there a letter with the, yeah. the suicide? Nope. Nope, no. just hung himself and killed himself. Uh, Larry Long made a statement to the newspaper and it said, there'll be a lot of women sleeping better tonight, knowing that Robert Leroy Anderson's no longer around. Wow. So. Yeah.
0: Well, that's amazing. Great, Quite a story. It sounds like quite a book. Um, do you guys have a website that people can go to to find out more information about your you guys?
4: Um, we have a, a Facebook page author's page and then also a website philhammondauthor.com
3: So the book is Duck, duct tape killer and it's uh, been going very very well
0: great we'll have that on our website as well so listeners can just do one click and pick up the book when they listen well guys it's been amazing um, the book is the duct tape killer and our guests have been phil and sandy hammond thank you for being here
3: thanks thank for you. having us thank you